Well, good morning, everybody. Not a bad start to the day, huh? Well, hey, thank you so much, guys, for leading us in worship. My name is Robert Red. Uh, it's great to see you, great to be here with everyone. And Ignite City kids, Ignite City students, you know the drill. Thanks for worshiping with us. It is back to your regularly scheduled programming. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for being a part of, part of our Sunday morning together. Well, if I'm here, it means that Brian ain't. Don't worry, it gets deeper than that from here on out, I promise. But if Brian, if, if I'm here, it means that Brian is being sent out, which is fantastic, right? So uh, this morning, he's at a camp today um, on the way to Kings Canyon, if anybody knows where that is, about four hours north of us, uh, Heartland Camp. Uh, so he's getting to preach uh, and spend time with families up there. So it's happening in real time, right? Their service started right when our service started. So we're going to take the chance to just uh, pray together uh, for him and the, the ministry that we get to send him out to do. We get to share him. Um, so we're going to pray for that, even though, even though he left me to talk about bond servants today at the end of Colossians, end of Colossians 3, right? He doubled up on husbands and wives so he could leave me with bond servants. But I got to tell you, I am, this topic is just absolutely transformed in my mind, and I'm so pleased to, to share some things that I've studied about uh, during the week uh, and pray that the Holy Spirit would um, show us some new things that are relevant just like they were then, but especially to us today as church family. So let's pray together. Jesus, first and foremost, um, I thank you for everything uh, that you're, you're showing us this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm still chewing on, on what Alyssa and, and Haley have, have shared with us, that, that no prayer is too big, right? And that little is much in God's kingdom. And I feel like there's some big truths that are happening right now. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to to learn those and unpack them and apply them and, and let them shape our lives when our, when our leaders are speaking into us here, Lord. And I pray for Brian. Not with us means that he's with others and um, proclaiming your truth, sharing the gospel, being sent out from, from a family that loves him and a family that appreciates him. And we thank you for Brian. We pray that wherever he is, you would be lifting him up that you'd be changing the hearts of those who are listening to him so they, they hear your words and your scripture and your spirit proclaimed loudly. And whatever the topic may be, Lord, we know that when, when he has a hold of your scriptures, Lord, you, you just light on him and make it come to life. And so I pray, Lord, for anyone uh, who might be at that camp hearing him right now, you would open their hearts to receive the message that you, not Brian, but that you have prepared for each and every individual one of them, Lord. So we praise you that he gets the chance to do that. And we also praise you that we get the chance to be here. Uh, we get the chance to be together um, sharing worship and sharing in your word together. And I pray that you would open our eyes. Please make our hearts ready to, to just hear. Hear what you have for us as the Holy Spirit in this room, Lord, we pray that you would open, our, open us up, open up our hearts to just uh, to hear and apply, to, to, to have action items, a call to action that we can take with us through the week and for the rest of our lives. But thank you for setting aside this time for us, for the church, to spend time on your word and to hear from you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Onesimus, not a common name, but in the first century Roman Empire, Onesimus is the name of a man who's approaching the final leg of his journey. He's heading home. And he's not alone. He's with Tychicus, Tychicus the Turk. And Tychicus may not be very well known even in that time, but uh, he did get to do some missionary journeys with Paul, right? The Apostle Paul. They met in Ephesus and they got to do at least two tours of, of duty to Jerusalem. And now, you know, uh, he's spent time with Paul. He's, he's served across the Roman Empire. He's become what Paul has called a brother, a faithful minister, a syndulos. Syndulos in Greek meaning a co-slave in the Lord. I guess you can add to his resume too, now a travel companion to Onesimus, who sits at the edge of the Aegean Sea, knowing that on the other side of it, plus about a week or two of walking, he's home. So Tychicus and Onesimus, they met about 700 miles away in the west in Rome. When Onesimus had what seemed like a chance encounter, we know it's a divine encounter with Paul, right? The apostle Paul. It's first century Roman Empire and Onesimus has now had the opportunity to encounter what everyone else is seeing, this message of Paul, this message from the eyewitness uh, testimonies of people who have seen Jesus, who experienced Jesus, who Jesus visited even after Jesus had, had died and rose again. This message of Paul, this explosion in the early church, Onesimus gets to be right in the middle of it. He gets to experience it for himself. And he also gets the chance to be confronted. Someone in Rome, bolder than me, came up to Onesimus and confronted him about his sin, sin that Onesimus probably thought he had left all the way back home. But no, it's sin. Not just Onesimus's problem, but everyone's problem. But wait, there is a Jesus who loves you, who paid the penalty of that sin, who made a way for you to have a destiny with him. It's a Jesus that is worth following. And so Onesimus repented. He changed his life around. He followed Jesus from that point on to demonstrate the faith and the truth that he was experiencing. And it began a transformational work in his life. He sees it. He feels it. Paul sees it. In fact, even while Paul is in prison in Rome, Onesimus uh, carries on this ministry work in Rome, and it's good. Paul even calls Onesimus his own child. That's how precious this man has become uh, to Paul in the ministry there. And Onesimus, it's not easy, right? This is early church in Rome. There is persecution and there is challenge, but it is good. And Onesimus is making a real change with Tychicus and the early church, and it would have been great to stay there. But Paul challenges him, says, it's time to go home. You've been far away. It's time to go home. 
And really, it's easier said than done. I mean, Onesimus, <laughs> he, he crossed much of Italy on foot. Um, he sailed across the Adriatic Sea. He walked literally one coast of, of Greece to the other, right? And that wasn't even the full journey. This is a big ask. But Onesimus actually knows the way. And here, as he's sitting at the edge of the Aegean Sea on this final leg, he realizes that every one of these steps that he's taken to get to Rome is a step that he has to retrace, going back into a challenging situation that he ran away from. So every hope, every enthusiasm in Christ that he received, that he enjoyed in Rome, you've got to imagine that there on the shore, making the call to head back to a, a bad spot, you wonder if it's maybe deflated a little bit. You know, the, the enamor of being a new Christian now is replaced with the challenge of serving Jesus. I mean, literally, Haley, like you said, he's turning his fear into faith and action that he's putting it in, into place in his life because what he ran away from is crime. Onesimus is a fugitive. Onesimus is a slave. And Onesimus had committed a crime that caused him to flee 1,200 miles to Rome to get away from the master that he feared could honestly execute him, beat him, any number of things. But, you know, just like Brian told us um, last week, last Sunday, right, that, that Roman patriarch had the ability to enforce the death sentence even on his own child, even when the child was an adult, right? He had every reason to be afraid of what was waiting for him in Colossae. But the Spirit of God, he realized, is not a spirit of timidity, and he's prompted to stop running away from his past. He talks it over with Paul. He has a spirit of power. And he has a God who is Lord over both slave and master. Paul knows the cost. Onesimus knows what he is heading back into. Punishment, potential death. And you know what? The, the populace of the time, they would totally condone it, right? That is justice. Here's a criminal comeback, sentenced to a punishment. It's everything that should happen, even though we know it's totally unfair. The world would condone it. And so Paul sends Onesimus and Tychicus to go back to Colossae and to preach the gospel as they go along all across the Roman Empire. He doesn't send them alone. He sends them with uh, a few items. The book of Ephesians, the book of the Colossians, and a letter to Onesimus's former slave master. And that's what they bring with them. A letter to the Colossians. And Paul never met the Colossians. He only heard about them. He knows them by association. But he understands the pressures that they're facing in the Roman Empire, right? He understands the pressures to worship every god, to worship in pagan ways, to edge ahead, whatever means necessary. He knows the pressures of a society that is counterculture to our own. And I think we can relate a ton to that. When we hear pressures about what our kids are being taught, 
all the more reason to pray for them at the start of a school year, for students and teachers, right? When we hear about the pressures on identity, when we hear about uh, the pressures on family and what it means, what it means, what the roles are and the responsibilities, what our values are according to the world is not what our values are according to God. And, and Paul understands this, even for a church that he never met before. But Onesimus also understands what is written in this letter, right? That here there is no Greek or Jew or, or Scythian or barbarian, slave or free, right? But all in Christ. And Onesimus is thinking, but I mean, that's great and all, and I believe it, but I am a slave, right? And I have to face real punishment for going back, right? And, and facing the struggle that I have in front of me. I think Paul would also say the same, though, that Paul is also a slave. And this is where we all get invited, I think, to participate in the interpretation of this passage here at the end of Colossians. What Paul is intending here is very literal for bondservants that we're going to talk about in just a moment. But I think he's also including as disciples all of us. That, that word for slavery in the Greek, uh, doumos, is actually mentioned about 120 times in the New Testament. 120 times, and, and sometimes it's mentioned as slavery, often it's about disciples, right? This is the life that we lead, right? We are slaves, we are servants, we are duomos to Jesus. We have set aside our rights and we entirely follow Jesus, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it hurts or it's uncomfortable. That's the standard that Paul brings up in these letters, and it's not something we often use today, right? We, we talk about um, we're disciples, right? We're, we're followers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't often call each other co-slaves, right? We don't, we don't do that here. Certainly no one welcomed me as a fellow co-slave as I walked through the door. It's not typical. It's kind of fallen out of fashion, right? But here is Paul in the early church among other church leaders saying, co-slave, we are a team, we can work on this together, serving the Lord together. And so what Onesimus is experiencing in a very real way now is faith exercised in, 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 in the fear of punishment, following after his master, his heavenly master, even though he's threatened with punishment on earth. So we pick it up in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Bondservants. So in this day, slaves served in households, they served in agriculture, they worked in mines, they were uh, forced labor, they were forced army, um, uh, military they were in workshops, they were in construction, you name it. And they even served next to and adjacent to free men. Because sometimes slaves actually asked for bond servantship in order to pay off a debt. Uh, they were born into it. Maybe it was a penalty for crime. There were many different reasons that servants existed in this day. In fact, uh, Warren Wiersbe, who's a, a Bible teacher, theologian, he writes, that Romans considered their slaves as things, not people. 
Masters had almost con a total control over their slaves and could do with them whatever they pleased. Few unsaved Roman masters ever thought of treating their slaves with fairness, for slaves deserved nothing. That is the world that Onesimus is in, that he tries to escape from. Slaves had no rights, even though it's estimated, believe it or not, that a third, maybe even as much as a half of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. The Roman, the population of the Roman Empire, that's how many slaves, um, uh, duolos, were there in the empire. It was an institution that was not about to change overnight. And yet we can read this, right? Bond servants obeying everything. Why didn't Paul just say, abolish, overthrow? right? Rebel. Your value is in Jesus. You are not supposed to be a slave. Overthrow the regime. This is not the family structure. And it would have been, it would have been nonsense to any Roman. Just like it would, have, it would have been nonsense for any Roman to think that they weren't the center of the household, right? That, and it would be nonsense for, for Paul, a Roman citizen, to be considered a slave, like, like he often says, that I'm a slave for Christ in the New Testament. Again, nonsense to Romans. It completely throws everything upside down that they know. But let's consider that source. Paul in prison is the one who writes this. Paul in chains is the one who says that we obey everything, that we're co-heir in Christ, also co-slave, in Christ. And as much as we want to talk about the rights, it's Paul who challenges the church of Colossae to talk about their service and the heart behind that service. Um, and, what, and what he calls in, in Colossians 1.10, bearing good fruit, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, bearing fruit in every good work, even the work that is uncomfortable, to say the very least. And one of the things that I went to as I was, I was looking through this passage, it reminded me a lot of Joseph. Technical or Joseph, right? Genesis 38, 40-ish Joseph, where he goes from being the pride of his father, right? The pride of the family to being sold into slavery, and he had, he had every right to contest that, but he, he can't, and he doesn't. And he's taken far away from his land into Egypt, put into the service of Potiphar, one of the captains of Pharaoh's guard. And so he serves there. He serves well. And he gets the, the rapport, the, the, um, the admonition of Potiphar in his household. He gets responsibility Things seem to be going well, right? Paul, if this was Paul writing about Joseph, he would have said, yeah, right? When you, when you serve, things go well, right? You see the blessing of God. But that's not what happened with Joseph. We know that. The, the better he served, well, he, then he ends up in prison, right? He's accused by Potiphar's wife, and he goes to jail now. So it goes from bad to okay to worse than it ever was before, Yet in prison, I think it's, it's Genesis uh, 39 or so, the whole chapter starts off by saying, after a while, after a while of being in prison, Joseph finally gets the opportunity to meet with 
uh, those, two, those two individuals who are excused from Pharaoh's court, he gets to interpret dreams. Eventually he's forgotten, but fast forward a little bit further, and he gets the chance to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Then he becomes the second in command in all of Egypt, second only to the throne of Pharaoh. There's that expression, though, after a while, he is serving for we don't even know how long, right? When he becomes the second in the land, he's about 30 years old. He is spending a long time in prison for something that was unfair, and he could have grumbled, he could have griped, he could have thrown up his hands, he could have cursed God. He serves. He serves so well that the, the head of the jail, the jail keeper, actually puts Joseph, a prisoner, in charge of the other prisoners. It makes no sense to me. But that's how well he served and how well he won over people that didn't even believe the same things that he believed. And he was given rapport. And even then, I wonder, when you think about the, the challenge of, of sometimes what we, what we encounter is, is Christianity in America, right? We have, we have the Bible verses that we love, right? The, the, like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, it's a great passage, right? And we hold to that in, in faith and in hope. In Romans 8.28, right, where we, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. But it really is a game of perspective because I bet there were days in prison where Joseph would have loved to have had a promise like that, but it may have also been an absolutely infuriating promise. And knowing that, hey, I'm working. I'm working so hard for you, God, but I'm not seeing the benefit. I'm not seeing the promise. I'm not seeing this turnaround in my favor. We know it does. We fast forward to the end. He's reconciled with his family. He, he plays a, a big part in saving uh, the ancient world back then during the famine. But even if that didn't happen, we know that Jesus has all of eternity to make it right. And that's the faith, that's the hope when we ask ourselves, is it fair, we have to trust. We have to trust that it is fair, even despite the circumstances. And I think that is, is so challenging for us. Can we really trust Jesus with the plan? Can we really trust Jesus with the work? Are we willing to let that go and trust God in the process? And I think the, the benefit, the result of it is, is this. It's what, it's what Joseph did. He bore good fruit with every good work, even with the work that wasn't so good. I think that's the challenge that, that Paul is trying to introduce to, to us as modern readers, but, but also to the church of Colossae. Not all of the work is going to feel good, and we're not, we're not excused from it. But to follow in this, right, to be servant to God is not only obedience to the one who saved us, but it is blessing in our lives, even when, even when it's hard. And so Onesimus carries this message that we are God's workmanship. I mean, literally in Ephesians, he's, he's got it, right? Straight from the manual, right? 210, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And he has to reconcile that. If I am his workmanship, what am I called to do? And I think Paul would write, 
what he's called to do is walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing good fruit even when the work is hard. We, the question in my mind then becomes, what is that good work? Well, let's go to, to verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So I came across this last week. Uh, Harry Ironside was a famous Bible teacher. Um, and when he was instructing his students, he would often share um, this anecdote, uh, the story of a maid who was asked how she really knew that she became a Christian. What was the, what was the telltale sign? What was the litmus test? She replied, as a maid, she replied, I know I am a Christian because I sweep under the rugs now. Right? Even where no one else is looking because her master in heaven knows. Right? Even where there's no light, even where no one else would see it. And, I, and so, it's a little different than me, right? I sweep under the rugs, right? I take something that isn't under a rug and I put it under a rug. That's not what she's doing here. She's taking what's under the rug out, picking it up, throwing it away, and, and doing an incredible job as unto the Lord. And I think in the economy of God, Gosh, I mean, I, th I think uh, Alyssa said it earlier, right? Little is much in God's kingdom. I think it's perfect for what we're talking about here. Little is much in God's kingdom. In the economy of God, menial can mean meaningful. Just like we, we can read in, in Joseph's toil, all the mundane, the meaningful, for however long he had to serve that in ways that he didn't deserve, but he did it. I think it's also in, in the, the servants and their actions in the New Testament at the wedding feast where they run out of wine and, and Mary asks them to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. And so they fill water again and again and again. A little bit of the mundane, setting up, preparing the way for the miraculous. And I think another thing here to consider in this verse is that it elevates, Paul elevates all work, whatever you do, Whatever you do, you do this for God, but whatever you do, there is inheritance. And for a bondservant, here, here's again a nonsensical idea, right? There's no inheritance for being a slave. But here it is. When you serve the Lord, when you serve this master, right, there are rewards promised in heaven. Maybe in a, a currency that we don't fully understand and don't fully appreciate this side of heaven. But there is Treasures in heaven awaiting believers after a lifetime, a lifetime of service. Right? I think Luke says that, right? The worker is worth his wages. And so he's established this new, this new identity for, for even the lowest of the low in society. No, no, no. You, you work for me. God of the universe, you work for me. And so work is part of God's plan from the very beginning. And yet, it's twisted, it's changed, it's altered. And so Paul helps us apply the principles from Jesus' teaching to reset and to help the church do the same, even in a society that doesn't fully understand or comprehend or adhere to the Scripture and the message that's being shared um, Alyssa, Alyssa brought us to, uh, to John 6 
uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the, the little boy, uh, the, the, the child that was able to share his uh, food. You know what happens right after that? The crowd is described by John, at least. The crowd starts pressing in on Jesus and wants to make him king by force. Isn't that wild? Like we have this, this beautiful picture of, of, uh, of a child's faith, right? And a miracle and providing, Jesus providing for, for these people that have come to hear him. And not just providing exactly the right amount, but providing even more than that, that they put in baskets, right? Uh, 12 baskets representing uh, the 12 tribes, that there was always remnant. There's always going to be more, right? The couple always overflow. It is a beautiful story. And yet, it ends a little bit on a, a downer, a negative note. It's scary, right? Jesus departs by ship. The disciples, it sounds like, takes a, they take a different ship. And then Jesus walks on water to join them, right, before they make it to the other side of the shore. So the crowd gathers. They catch up. They catch up to Jesus on the shore. And they, they ask him, like, where did you go? Why did you leave? He tells them this. Do not work yeah, in chapter 6, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And they say, um, you know, I, we, we, don't, we don't want that. Show us, uh, show us your signs, right? Tell us what it is that you do. What is the work that you do? They're looking for a thing. Because really, that's what they were following the whole time. In fact, Jesus says, you know, you're not seeking me. You just came here to get your fill. Literally what he says. Which is the exact same reason we only have Donut Sunday once a month. Right? We, 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 it's here. There's a precedent, right? There's a warning here. Can't have it every week. But they followed to get their fill and he tells them, no, I am the bread of life. You seek me, right? You think you see the bread in front of you. No, no, go after me. He uses this example back in, in Moses' time in, in the Old Testament with the manna that fell from heaven. It's like, no, we, we gathered manna because Moses told us to. He's like, no, 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 no. You gather it because God gave it to you. And God gave you the instructions for doing it right and this crowd that heard this message that Jesus is sharing on that other side of the shore, they grumbled. That was the response. It's not what they wanted to hear. D.L. Moody, um, he writes this, Our greatest fear should not be that of failure, but of succeeding at the things in life that don't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be failure, but it's succeeding at the wrong things, right? Having our eye on the wrong prize, the thing that maybe looks good even, but isn't the right. And doing good things that keep us from doing great things. And you know, I, I would love to think that I've got Dale Moody's quote right above my bed or the backdrop of my phone, something I wake up with every single morning. I don't. Every once in a while, I come across it in a note like I did last week, and I remember, oh man, that's a great quote. 
Maybe I should apply that. So I've, I'm not the best at this one by any means, but one thing that I'm, I'm starting to do and is starting to be helpful to me is the unto you rule. Unto you. Right, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Let me plug it into a formula here. I'm going to squeeze this customer for extra margins unto you. Probably not, right? Doesn't sound quite right. Doesn't sound like something I want to say right to him by any means. Uh, I'm going to work on this presentation, my work presentation on Sunday unto you. And that one stabs me, I've got to tell you. That is something that I struggle with a ton, right? I want to be prepared. I want to get things done. Monday morning, East Coast meetings, they don't care about us on the West Coast. I see some heads nodding. The, the struggle is real. But am I going to do that unto the Lord? I'm going to chew out this employee unto God. No way. No way. It'll stop you in your tracks right there. Workaholics, I'm going to be a workaholic unto God. It, it may be a gut check. I'm a worryholic. I don't know if anyone else is like that. With, so like, I'll make my presentation, and then I'll just stew on it, right? My presentation's Monday. I won't touch it over the weekend, but I'll think about it every freaking minute until it actually happens, right? And I would, it will just like, it, it, it's like pulling a loose thread, and I will unravel. If I, just, if I just took, and I realize that now, thinking out loud, if I just took that nervous energy and applied that, right, and made the presentation the way it should be, maybe things would go better for me. Am I a worryholic unto God? The God who tells us, no, don't worry. What can you even worry about that would change anything? No, cast your worries onto me. I'm going to share my faith at work unto God. Yeah, there, see, the formula is starting to make more sense. And man, that's hard. I know if, you're, if your company's like mine, I've got to go through HR meetings twice a year where, you know, I, I'm not even allowed to compliment someone's hair without being sexist, racist. It's hard out there right now. It's hard to be a light and it's hard to be bold, but I've got to tell you, um, a great quote, actually, I, I came across, Amanda, you told me about this one, um, it, from Martin Luther. The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes. And I think that's incredible. If people can just see us be a light and as opposed to hear us telling them how we're a light, we might get further and might be a little more real in our relationships. And I've got to tell you, when, when you know, Brian and, and Jason and others right, have, have challenged me in discipleship group to be more vocal at work, it works well. And most often I've come across people that are also Christians, also wanting to share their faith and also looking for others to do the same with them, to change and transform their workplace as well. I'm going to pick up my kids unto God. I'm going to do the dishes unto God. I'm going to give this person a ride unto God. I'm going to take an extra 10 minutes unto God. I, I, my wife is laughing about doing the dishes unto God, and I'm worried about what that's going to mean for me down the road. <laughs> I'm going to travel on a work plane unto God. This one hits home, right? Applying this rule, I, I don't put my headphones on until the person next to me put their, puts their headphones on. 
I'm going to leave the option to talk with them. And not everybody does, of course, right? And it's been even harder with masks. But I'm going to travel for work in an airplane unto God. I'm going to <laughs> get squished into a sardine can, a tube. I'm going to give up my personal space unto God. What does that mean? What am I going to do with that time? I'm going to be at church unto God. As I walk through those doors, what does that mean? I'm going to worship unto God. Paul writes, you know, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter if it's on that list or not. Do everything in the name of the Lord. Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. With sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Qualified. If I were to ask you, what, how would you describe the salvation that has been given to you? If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe how Jesus surrendered his life on the cross for you, right? How, how would you describe that? How does that make you feel? But grateful, undeserving. And here, Paul says, true, all of the above, qualified. You are qualified to be in, in God's family. You are qualified to be saved. You are qualified to share your faith with others. You are qualified to work for me. Jesus says it's not just the pastors who work for me. If you believe me, if you are my disciple, you're hired. You have the qualifications that I'm looking for because I have a ton of jobs everywhere. I think that's so powerful to be qualified in the faith. And I think it changes how we approach our Monday not just qualified to be Christians on Sunday, but how we approach our Monday, our work week, our lives at home. It's a new life. And there's no separation. There's one mission. There is ambition that God gives you to fulfill it. There is integrity that helps become the guidepost of our lives. And there is a spirit of power. Power. I don't think that's power to exert on others. I think it's power to withstand and to hold on, strength to hold on, strength to hold back. And in Onesimus' case, it's the spirit of power to step out and put it into action as he's bound for Colossae. His slave master had every right to execute him on the spot when he arrived. But there is more to the story. There always is, right? That third letter, he's got Colossians, he has Ephesus. That third letter is written to his former slave master by the name of Philemon. Philemon. Now, we know about Philemon. Philemon appears to be a comparably rich man in society who owned slaves, but a lot of the rich in his day did. He evidently came to faith by Paul. And guess who's leading the church in Colossae? One of the leaders is Philemon. And so Paul, 
writes this, this letter that Onesimus is carrying to Philemon that says, Onesimus is no longer a bond servant. In uh, chapter 3, verse 16, no, he's much more than a bond servant. Greet him as a beloved brother. Nonsense to any Roman, anybody in the empire. But look, he, especially to me, how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord? Paul says, if, he, if Onesimus has wronged you in any way after all this time, I will pay for it. As a third party, I will intercede because that's how important God's church family is. That's how much it matters to us. It's how much it matters to Jesus that there is reconciliation and there is healing. In verse 15, Paul writes that for this, perhaps this is why uh, Onesimus was parted from you for a while so that he could come to me. He could meet Jesus even though he was parted from you for a while, now he will be with you forever in eternity because of this thing that's happened. You're not about to take back Onesimus and punish him like, like he should be punished in the letter of the law. There is something supernatural and special happening here. Onesimus was condemned by the law. It was not a fair law. His sentence was death. He escaped it. But he doesn't need to run away from his past. Not with the spirit of power. He doesn't need to flee from his responsibilities. Even though the very letter he carried in the Colossians, Colossians 2 verse 13 says that, he, like all of us, right, we are dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. God made alive together with us. Look at this. All trespasses forgiven. Canceling the record of debt that stood against the legal demands. It's set aside. It's nailed to the cross. 1,200 miles was not enough for Onesimus to get the chance to escape the love of Jesus. It found him. It chased him to Rome. And I think it's so important that we consider, as, as Paul has written through all these things and the story of Onesimus, Christianity doesn't give us special treatment. Christianity is not a fix-all. Christianity would even offer that we become more efficient slaves, better slaves. Nothing is popular about saying that. It barely makes sense to say something like that. But this word, this gospel, doesn't excuse us from hard work it might even ask us to work harder. It doesn't try to get us out of bad situations. It might even give us the enthusiasm to hit those hard situations head on. Because when our business is no longer ours, but it's God's, it changes the tone of our work. It absolutely changes the tone of our work. Coming around the corner here, chapter 4, verse 1. We made it to chapter 4. Uh, of Colossians. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Who that master in heaven is, I think, is something that got answered during our Bible reading plan this week. And by the way, this Bible reading plan, I feel, prepared us to look at this passage. We had the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son returning home. We had the parable of the dishonest manager not working for his master in heaven. And then we had this memory verse, Mark 10, 45, right? That for even the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the master that we have. That is the master that we have who lays down his life, and it makes me think that I am Onesimus. We are all like Onesimus here. Now, he, he took his secret, right, the secret of him fleeing as a refugee. He took that, he exposed it, he, shi- he showed a light on it, and he made his testimony across 1,200 miles of, of the ancient Roman Empire. That's what you do when you have a God like ours, right? That's, that's what you do with uh, the tone of our work looking the right way, sounding the right way. But I feel like I am an Esmus. I, I feel like I have a master, Jesus, who is kinder than I deserve, that the law condemns me, condemns us as sinners. But I've given my life to Jesus. Like so many of us here in this church family, amen? We've given our lives to Jesus. And just like Onesimus, we carry with us letters. We carry with us the letters of our names written in the Lamb's book of life. We are spared we are freed. If we're surrendered to Jesus, if we're suffering for Jesus, if we're serving Jesus, then that is the good news, right? That we're not slaves to sin. We're not pulled in all these different directions. We're not mired down. We're uh, confused or, or lacking purpose and value. All that is fixed. All that is changed so that we can become more like what Jesus intended for us to be as his followers. And, and, he, and he steps in. Just like Paul said, hey, if, if Onesimus owes you anything, I will fix it. I will make it right. Here Jesus is stepping in and saying that I will repay it. The debt that you owe, I will repay. To say nothing of you owing me even your own self. So I think we can't serve two masters. We have to either serve God or we're serving ourselves and everything else. But if we choose Jesus, I think the call to action is this. We're his servants. We're his workmanship. Paul tells us we are qualified, but we are not excused. I don't think we have that freedom. Instead, we are given a spirit of power, a spirit of power. We are servants. We're his workmanship. We are qualified. We are not excused. But guess what? Our master is good. And our master heals. So I think we'll have the opportunity here um, at the end as the, as the worship band can come back up. Um, we'll ask some folks if you feel comfortable um, standing to either side uh, and, and just being available to pray uh, with anyone who might want to pray or might want to respond to anything that they're, that they're feeling or thinking through or dealing with. Um, I think the expectation is you're not just going to talk with someone along the side of the room, but you're going to talk to God, right? You're going to see the face of Jesus and you're going to do it with, with a believer, with a, a brother or a sister in Christ. We were servants, we were his workmanship, we were qualified. It affects the tone of our work, therefore the tone of our lives. And we can be disciples, but let's, let's not... And and that's so important, and that's what Scripture teaches, but let's not sugarcoat it either. We are servants. We are bought by the master who paid absolutely everything. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for opening up your scriptures to us this morning, reminding us that we have new life. We have, if we are surrendered to you, Lord, we have new life. Right? And the slave doesn't have to be a slave any longer. But you absolutely upheave everything that is wrong in this world. You give us every reason, Lord, to find our value in you as a servant, a bondservant turned brother, a servant turned sister, that you have delivered us from a domain of darkness. You have delivered us into your kingdom. You have elevated us, not as slaves to sin that goes absolutely nowhere, has no end but destruction. No, you bring us into family. So we praise you, Lord. And we remember that it's not just new life you give us, but you've also put to death the things behind us. You've, you've put to death everything that would seek to destroy us, and you did it with an incomparable price. Right? You gave your life, the master becoming the servant. That is why it's so important that we worship you. That is why there is only one truth and one God. You died, Lord, so that we could be saved to you. Not, not Buddhism, not uh, Muhammad, not our, our own worldview, nothing that we could do on our own, right? You, you died to make a way. That is the value. That is how precious your death is. That is what makes the gospel so true. You didn't die so that we could find our salvation somewhere else. There is nothing like the price that you paid to bring us into your family. And we thank you, Lord, for everything that you're showing us, everything that you're teaching us. Please prepare us for a good work that bears good fruit today, next week, and Lord, never stop for the rest of our lives. Please help this church, this church family after you be fruitful and blessed as we carry out your words as a team, a church family and a church team. We thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.